You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1854th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 12th of November 2021. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Jackie Whiting and your readers are Sue Cunningham-Snell and Neil Keeley. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And we start, as always, with the headlines. Charity rolls in to help fill gaps in dental cover. Cut to bus service through villages angers mothers. We had to act to stop spread More frequent buses, a key part of vision for transport. As dental provision in Suffolk comes under fire, a charity is set to visit Bury St Edmunds to offer treatment to residents in urgent need. DentAid, which provides free dental care for homeless and vulnerable people domestically and internationally, set up in two locations in Bury St Edmunds for two days this week. The unit is open primarily for those with toothache who cannot access any other form of NHS dental care and people will be triaged to assess their needs upon arrival. It comes after Toothless in Suffolk launched a campaign calling for the full restoration of NHS dentistry services in the county earlier this year. Darren Turner, Bury St Edmunds Town Councillor, who has also been heading up the Toothless in Suffolk campaign in Bury, said, We at Toothless in Suffolk are delighted to be involved in bringing Dentaid to Bury and hope to be able to alleviate some of the suffering experienced by the people of Bury due to the lack of NHS dental services across the town. Of course, this is just a drop in the ocean compared to what is needed which is access to an NHS dentist for all. The campaign will continue until this is achieved. I would like to thank Morton Hall Community Centre and West Road Church for donating their facilities to allow Dentaid to visit. Emergency treatments, including extractions and fillings, will be able to be carried out, although orthodontics, root canal treatments, implants or cosmetic dentistry will not. The clinics have been funded by Denplan, part of Simply Health. Andy Evans, chief executive of Dentaid, said, Following recent media reports, we have been made aware that people in Bury St Edmunds have been struggling to access dental care, which is causing unnecessary misery for those living with untreated toothache. 
Dentaid has run similar clinics in Dewsbury in West Yorkshire and last month provided free dental care for fishermen in Lowestoft and Felixstowe. This is its first trip to Bury. Two mothers have condemned plans by a bus company to stop an early morning route through their villages which has thrown their daughter's college journeys into disarray. Amanda Hazelton from Baton and Rachel Newport from Tostock have said Stevenson's of Essex has axed services on the 384-5 route which took their daughters to West Suffolk College. The pair now say the next bus to Bury St Edmunds is not until nearly 2pm. Amanda, whose daughter Millie is in the first year of hairdressing course, said she was left stranded on Monday at her bus stop as no one had told her it had finished. She said she used that bus four days a week and I'm just incensed that a village as affluent as Baton does not have a single bus that leaves for Bury in the morning. Services like this are vital for villages such as ours. Rachel's daughter Arwen used the bus for her psychology course as well as her part-time job in town. Rachel said, If we are being encouraged to reduce our carbon emissions by using our cars less, why are crucial public services being pulled away from us? It is also the change in the return journey which Rachel is concerned about. She said, There used to be a bus from outside the college at 4.15pm, which was perfect for the students finishing at 4. Now it leaves the bus station and does not pass the college, so my daughter has to walk into town and stay for one and a half hours in the dark and the cold for the last bus back. Bill Hiran, Stevenson's of Essex Managing Director, said the elements of the 384 and the 385 bus services were historically funded by Suffolk County Council, but parts of the funds were withdrawn pre-COVID, though the company kept on running the old timetable for as long as it could. He said, but with reduced passenger numbers and driver shortages, we advised Suffolk County Council in August that the new timetable would finally need to come into effect. They have now concluded that usage does not justify the retention of these journeys, and so the funding and the journeys have ceased. These changes were posted on our website and I believe on Suffolk On Board. Now this comes from Craig Black, who's acting chief executive at the West Suffolk Hospital. You would have seen that at the end of last month we took the very difficult decision to suspend almost all visiting at our sites for three weeks. Due to the high rates of COVID-19 in Suffolk, we took this decision in tandem with our colleagues at Ipswich Hospital as the best way to help limit the spread while protecting both our patients and staff. Please be assured we are continually reviewing these restrictions. I know that this would have been very difficult news for a lot of people who are either in hospital or have a loved one in our care, and I want to thank everyone for their patience and understanding. To help families keep up to date with how their loved ones are while they are in one of our hospitals, West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust 
operates a dedicated clinical helpline. We also run our Keeping in Touch service, which helps connect family via video calls if patients don't have access to digital devices. Despite it only being November, we are experiencing levels of demand at our trust we normally only see in the depth of winter. And over the last few months, we've seen the highest number of people attending our emergency department. While we're always here for those who need us, I do ask that you help us through this very busy time by using NHS services appropriately. Considering contacting your community pharmacy, GP surgery or NHS 111 could help avoid a long wait in A&E while freeing up our staff to support emergency cases. Away from the emergency department, we're continuing to adapt our services to ease the backlog created by the COVID-19 pandemic. We are working very closely with healthcare partners across the county to ensure residents of West Suffolk receive the care they require including offering earlier appointments in other locations and working with Abbeycroft Leisure to offer services that aim to improve people's health and fitness in preparation for surgery. Last year we announced that Hardwick Manor was our preferred site for a new hospital to replace our current site and this month we have started engagement sessions with the general public to hear your views on the new hospital. A series of COVID-19 secure face-to-face events has been arranged throughout November and December and I encourage you to take the opportunity to give your opinion if you are able to attend. Locations are all across the county, including an event at Sudbury Town Hall on Thursday, November the 18th from 3pm to 7pm with a virtual meeting being held on November 22nd if you are unable to physically attend anywhere. Please head over to our website at www.wsh.nhs.uk to find out more. As hard as it is to believe, Christmas is just around the corner. I'm sure you all remember how difficult last year was when we had to go through most or all of the festive period being away from the people we love to lockdown restrictions. So this year many of us will be eager to see more people than ever to celebrate. So we can all have a safe and enjoyable Christmas, it's really important to take steps now to protect those we love. You can do this by getting fully vaccinated and have your booster when it's due. While COVID-19 infection rates are so high in the community, it's also important to wear face covering in crowded places and to remember to wash your hands thoroughly with soap and water. Taking these simple measures should help ensure that we all have a Merry Christmas this year. Buses connecting Haverhill and Cambridge could run four times every hour and rural services be improved if a new vision for public transport in Greater Cambridge gets the go-ahead. Enhancing the bus service is just one of the key elements included in marking connections. Have your stay on greener travel in Greater Cambridge, a set of proposals put forward for public consultation by the Greater Cambridge Partnership known as the GCP. 
The consultation, which runs until December the 20th, asks for opinion on the GCP's proposals for not only transforming public transport, but also for enhancing cycling and walking and reducing pollution and congestion. The proposals have the backing of the recently elected Mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority, Dr Nick Johnson. He said, I believe that people-friendly and climate-friendly public transport linked to a strong walking and cycling network is the future. If we do more legwork, travel less by car and more by bus and train, we will transform our own health and that of our children. We will put more people in touch with better opportunity and we will cut the county's shockingly high level of carbon emissions, helping to halt and perhaps even reverse climate change. The consultation is on proposals which look to the future, offering zero-emission buses, lower fares, new routes across our area, including rural communities, and moving us towards the safe, joined-up network we all need. It's very clear we have a growth challenge in the Greater Cambridge area, alongside the gigantic challenge of the climate emergency. So our growth, while necessary, must be sustainable. And part of achieving that means ending our dependency on the private car. The consultation document states we need to reduce traffic levels by 10 to 15 percent on 2011 levels, and that we need a better public transport system to ensure that most people have a quicker, more convenient and reliable journey than by car. Now this is some worrying news. The government is to send in extra support to tackle Suffolk's high COVID-19 infection rates as a new face mask policy is introduced. For five weeks from this Monday, people have been urged to, quote, always wear a face mask in crowded areas as part of a package of new measures. It comes as the county was on Saturday granted status as an enhanced response area, an ERA. Public Health Suffolk applied for the ERA status earlier this week. It also means that from Monday the county will experience a five-week period where additional government teams, support and resources are used to clamp down on COVID cases as well as address vaccination take-up problems. According to Suffolk County Council, ERA status comes as pressure on the county's hospitals is reaching critical levels due to more people needing treatment with some of the highest rates of infection in the country. The request for additional support was submitted by Public Health Suffolk on behalf of public sector partners to help the NHS avoid unsustainable pressure. The additional help will include support for the vaccination efforts by extending opening hours and creating pop-up vaccination clinics within communities and help to reduce transmission in schools with increased testing and additional temporary powers. To reduce the spread, residents in Suffolk are encouraged to do the following. 1. Get fully vaccinated and have your booster when it's due. 2. Wash your hands regularly with soap and water. 
Three, always wear a face covering in crowded areas. Four, ventilate indoor spaces. And five, get tested regularly and stay at home if you feel unwell. Stuart Keeble, Suffolk's Director of Public Health, said, We want to get ahead and stop COVID before our NHS reaches the point of no return. In the seven days up to October 29th, the number of cases in West Suffolk was 931, with a case rate per 100,000 people of 525.1. In Mid-Suffolk, there were 420 cases with a rate of 400.5, and in Bayburg, there were 318 cases and a rate of 342.9. In Ipswich, there were 751 cases and a case rate of 552.3. East Suffolk had 883 cases and a rate of 352.7. Last month, additional measures including siblings of children with COVID self-isolating, restrictions on visit to schools and older children and adults wearing face masks were introduced. Uh, But now I have some good news on the subject um, in a slightly different area of uh, Suffolk. So COVID (laughs) cases are receding across the region. COVID cases are receding in Newmarket and the surrounding area in a trend which reflects falling case numbers recorded across Suffolk and Cambridgeshire. In the seven-day period between October the 28th and November the 4th, Cases in Cambridgeshire fell from 2,963 to 2,428, with cases dropping from 3,402 to 2,780 in Suffolk. The combined figures for Newmarket North, Studlands and Exning and Newmarket South and Racehorse fell from 70 to 63. Further afield, the Dunningham and Cheveley area saw a fall from 30 cases to 20, with Swaffham and Bottisham reporting 25, down from 35 in the previous seven days. Burwell's cases have fallen markedly from 47 to 31, while Soames' case numbers dipped from 105 to 78, and the Red Lodge, Icklingham and Moulton reported 41 cases, compared to 43 previously. The exceptions to this trend are Islam, Fordham and Chippenham, which has reported a rise from 26 to 36 cases, and Mildenhall, which has risen from 52 to 67. National data, which is available for as recently as November the 9th, shows a fall over their previous seven days from 280,000 479 to 2,000, sorry, 239,000, it'd be good if it was 2,000, but 239,034. West Suffolk Foundation Trust is asking people to check their homes for items such as commodes, toilet frames and crutches as part of an amnesty on equipment returns. It is hoped residents will find equipment as it costs services money and poses potential delays to new patients who need the items. 
Laura Rawlings, Contract Manager for the Community Equipment and Wheelchair Services at West Suffolk Foundation Trust, said, We know people are always wanting to support their NHS services, and one easy way to help us at the moment is to ensure any unused community equipment that has been issued by the NHS in your home is returned to us. Once pieces have been found or are no longer needed, they can be picked up for free through Mediquip, the company that supplies the equipment. This can be done by calling them on 01473 351 805 or sending an email to suffolk at mediquip-uk.com. Management of a GP surgery have said they are working hard to make changes after receiving a requires improvement rating from the Care Quality Commission, the CQC. Inspectors visited the Reynard surgery in Red Lodge between September 27th and October 4th to review actions taken by the practice to improve the quality of care. They also looked at follow-up areas where the surgery was asked to improve upon following a 2019 inspection, which also resulted in requires improvement rating. During the visit, among some of the findings, expectors noted significant improvements and have been made to completion and oversight of recruitment checks. Staff immunisation and appraisals training, the oversight of nurses working in extended roles, policies and health and safety checks, including security. They also notice an improvement in practice for patients with long-term conditions and mental health needs. However, patients did not always receive effective care and treatment. They also noted staff dealt with patients with kindness and respect and involved them in decisions about their care. Yet inspectors noted some of the processes in place to ensure good governance were not wholly effective. A Reynard surgery spokesman said while they were disappointed with the rating, they were working hard to implement the required changes. They said they were pleased the report highlighted how they had adjusted services over the last 18 months and how staff treat patients with kindness and respect. They added at a challenging time for GP surgeries, they were committed to doing their best. East Anglia's Children's Hospices, that's each, uh, is offering affordable Christmas presents at its shops across East Anglia. The Good Enough for Gifts range features clothing and bath sets to children's toys and games. The special seasonal selection was launched on Monday. Sarah Throssell, each head of retail central operations, said, We're very excited and rightly proud of our Good Enough for Gifts range. There's always so much to think about in the build-up to Christmas. Sometimes it's hard finding the right presents, but we genuinely believe these gifts will give people lots of ideas and options. The Good Enough for Gifts range is now on display in all our shops, with items specially chosen by our team as ideal gifting ideas. We've got everything from bath sets and children's toys, 
games and puzzles to selected clothing, beautiful books and much, much more. As we all start thinking about Christmas gifts, this is a lovely opportunity to reuse and re-gift and it will also be kinder to both the planet and your bank account. It comes as each also launched a new range of everyday cards. They feature a selection of designs and start at 99p. Each cares for children and young people with life-threatening conditions across Cambridgeshire, Essex, Norfolk and Suffolk. From 14 shops in 2014, the charity now has 44 across East Anglia, and in 2019, each was recorded as the second fastest growing retailer in the annual Charity Shops Survey. Blooming Lovely Town takes two top prizes. And that is Bury St Edmunds has been victorious in two categories of the 2021 Anglia in Bloom competition, despite the campaign being held virtually again this year. More than 230 entries were received for the 10 Anglia in Bloom categories, with Berry in Bloom submitting 14 entries across nine of those categories. Berry has won two, coming top with its smile bed, spring planting display, while Nauton Park and the Abbey Gardens jointly claim the public space prize. And David Irvin from Berry in Bloom said... With 10 Anglia in Bloom gold awards behind us, we had hoped to make it 11. However, we have new projects planned for 2022. Mm, That's going to be interesting, isn't it? A Barry St Edmunds man has called for action over nuisance littering. Barry Thomas from Morton Hall has been collecting large numbers of discarded surgical masks off the pavements in town since the start of the coronavirus pandemic and he wants West Suffolk Council and residents to do more about littering. The 74-year-old said, There should be more litter bins and more signs around and I am not getting much response from the council. He added that there were too many people just dumping their rubbish and he was getting a bit annoyed about it. A West Suffolk Council spokesperson said they emptied 1,200 bins in the district on a regular basis and if people found full bins, they should wait until they found an empty one or take their rubbish home or to work. I have something now on what's on, which is, um, I think, hopefully will be a bit of interest to you all. It's a changes revealed for the Christmas lights events. Organisers of the Bury St Edmunds Christmas Lights event have revealed a number of changes to the town centre festivities, festivities sorry, to keep shoppers COVID safe. The R Bury St Edmunds celebration on Thursday, November the 18th from 3 to 8pm traditionally launches the build-up to the town's festive season but will have a new look to ensure social distancing. In a change for this year, there won't be a stage and the Christmas lights will already be on as the event opens. The annual Christmas charity market will host stalls from good causes and community organisations and a number of town centre businesses will also be participating. 
Street entertainment will include stilt walkers, a magician, Victorian carol singers and the Salvation Army band playing Christmas music. A variety of food stalls and a fun fair will complete the evening, as well as Santa's sleigh, along with elves and the man himself. The evening will also see the launch of the R. Berry St Edmunds 12 Days of Christmas Trail that runs in partnership with the HSBC UK. Now, my what's on items, I have two that I'll read. Uh, the Remembrance Sunday service will be held on uh, Sunday, the 14th of November. This is coming this coming Sunday uh, on Angel Hill at around 1030 in the morning and two jazz concerts one in Ipswich Sunday November the 14th the Karen Sharp Trio that's at venue 16 Ipswich 230 £15 or £17 a new venue and afternoon start time for the rebranded Ipswich Jazz and Blues Club features saxophonist Sharp back on home turf with her trio and uh, the other one on Friday, November the 19th, the Duncan Hemstock swings the thing at the Hunter Club in Bury St Edmunds at 8pm, £16 or £8 for under-25s. Last at the Hunter Club in January 2018 when he blew up an absolute storm, the fabulous saxophonist and clarinetist Duncan Hemstock delivers authentic swing sounds of the 30s and 40s, replete with his inventive musicality and breezy Aussie charm. <laughs> uh, and now we're going to move on to some letters. There are not quite so many letters this week, but my first one is from Elizabeth Peabody, and she's from Exning in Newmarket. It was great to see Waitrose announce it was no longer selling 10p plastic carrier bags, but so disappointing to see the store is still selling 50p ones. Just because a bag is more expensive does not mean it will cause any less pollution. The recent COP26 conference warned us all the clock is ticking as far as efforts to save our planet are concerned. Many of the things we need to do are hard, but some even beyond our control. But surely we are all intelligent enough to take a bag with us when we go shopping so we don't add to the mountain of plastic already polluting our environment. And if we knew that shops no longer provided bag with would we make sure we remember to have one with us? Readers may have noticed an increasing number of people wearing white poppies, sometimes together with red ones, in the time leading up to Remembrance Day. These were first introduced in 1933 as a symbol of commitment to working actively for a world where conflicts are resolved without violence and with justice. It seeks to represent the effects of war that last long beyond the end of armed conflict for both military and civilian populations. Respect is thus given to all those who have suffered and continue to suffer from war. More information can be found at www.ppu.org.uk. Poppies can be purchased locally at Haverhill Art Centre or online at the above address. Today, that was November the 11th, at 11 o'clock, 
Group members will have joined the nation's minute silence and placed a wreath of white poppies at the war memorial in Haverhill. We welcome those who would like to join us in this mark of respect. That comes from Avril Dawson. Uh, my letter is from Lillian and Dougal True from Lockside in Dunfries. And they had visited Newmarket and they wrote this when they got back to Scotland. Day Centre staff were so kind to us. I would like to think that staff and volunteers at Newmarket Day Centre for the kindness they showed us on our recent visit. They bent over backwards for us and couldn't do enough for us. Special thanks to Elvis McKean, Laura Evans and Veronica Fix. Now this is headed opinion as part of a letter from Paul Kirkley from Suffolk Free Press. If we can't rely on our elected representatives who oppose dumping sewage in rivers, at least we can rely on um, Czech's notes, uh, Fergal Sharkey. Yes, that's right. The former undertone singer is a long-standing campaigner against pollution in British rivers. Sharkey's interest in the subject arose out of his lifelong passion for fly fishing. He is chairman of the Amwell Magna Fishery in Hertfordshire, which is not something, I imagine, many former punk rockers can say. Ironic, really, as freshwater rivers aren't generally very, you know, sharky. Anyway, Fergal spent much of last week trying to get uh, sewage as the top trending topic on Twitter. Let's make it number one, he tweeted, though surely number two would have been more appropriate? Question mark. I wonder if, when he was a young Turk singing about getting his teenage kicks, he ever thought he'd one day be engaged in this sort of chart battle, from the hit parade to the sh parade from the music. Um, my last letter is from Malcolm Searle, and... He, it's by email, so I don't know where he's from, but he heads his letter, Culture Secretaries of Propaganda. Cultural Secretary Nadine Dory's hypocrisy is staggering. The Newmarket Journal, November the 4th. For what she fails to mention in her Journalism Matters article, Julian Assange, a journalist, not a computer hacker or peddler of fake news, but an exposer of criminality and the highest level of governmental war crimes, for which he has been hounded and now incarcerated in one of Britain's most atrocious jails. With the might of two regimes against him, intent on silencing the truth, the injustice continues as witness to her and her ilk's duplicity of purpose in issuing such blatant propaganda. Mm. Now we have a, a lengthy feature article, in fact so lengthy that we're going to split it between the two readers. It's called Food for Thought. Always on the trail of good food stories, Nicola Miller stays close to home when she takes a food tour at Bury St Edmunds Guildhall and finds out about feeding service personnel during the war, British eating habits and what table manners can tell you. She said, As I walk under the 13th century stone entrance arch of Bury St Edmunds Guildhall and look up at its edifice of red and white brick, moulded stone and black napped flint, 
I can't help wondering about the thousands of people who have done the same since it was built. The Guildhall is the oldest continuously used civic building in Britain and we are fortunate to have a structure like this in our little town, especially one in such good repair. This is because back in 2015 a project was launched by Beres and Edmunds Heritage Trust to convert the Guildhall into a heritage centre and now, post-lockdown, the building is once again open to the public. I'm here to attend one of the Guildhall's new tours, built around the theme of food. Like the other tours, it is an immersive experience where the very fabric of the building is brought to life. It feels right, considering the Guildhall was, quote, provided for the people as a meeting place, a community chamber and a public facility and has always been in the control of the governing bodies of the town, unquote, representing a secular shift away from the Abbey's former control. My guide is Catherine Buchanan. Over an hour, I get to see the banqueting hall, minstrel's gallery, courtroom and evidence house, a Tudor kitchen, sensory gardens and the Royal Observer operations room. In the latter case, of the 40 that were built at the start of the Second World War, it is the only one to remain intact. It stuns me that during the Battle of Britain, the Guildhall Ops Room was the place where the region's air defences were coordinated. The staff was drawn from local people who were responsible for monitoring all air activity over East Anglia. There is a large mapping table in the centre of the newly restored room where controllers would mark each plane's position, height, speed and course. This information would then be passed on to fighter pilots to help them intercept enemy aircraft. Standing at the mapping table, I look out of the window at the gardens and adjacent buildings. It's the same view the controllers had as they went about their work in a tiny room in a town that has survived a civil war, the Great Famine, the Black Death and two world wars. Land girls worked in this room too, sometimes at night, after a busy day of manual labour and the usual domestic duties of women who were parenting alone because their husbands were deployed. I hope it helped them cope with what must have felt like a huge responsibility. It's not just the Ops Room's big history that attracts people, though. People ask to see it and learn how it works, but not all are interested in war, says Catherine. More are interested in where the thousands of airmen and soldiers could get a bed and food during the war. This made me realise if people were going to return, we needed more than one tour, and as the Guild Hall throughout its history had been a place of festivities and celebration, food seemed a good starting point. As we look through the photograph in the Ops Room, many of them feature people from well-known Berry families, Catherine tells me that at the beginning of the war there were 15 airfields and by the end of the war there were 107 and 360,000 people went through Ruffham alone. The town needed and wanted to feed these people. The Athenaeum, equipped by Green King, was one such place. But the Baptists and Methodists didn't want soldiers to go to pubs, so they set up canteens. I have counted 22 places in Bury where you could get a cup of tea, she says. 
The Methodist canteen on Brent Govel Street served 900,000 snacks, and a lot of the helpers were over 80. The YMCA on Crown Street was another location. Then there was the Salvation Army and the British Legion and the WRVS, whose mobile canteen was given to them by the Americans. Documents in the ops room detail the staggering amount of food served up by this canteen. Catherine talks about the British restaurant concept. Establishments set up in places where people could not cook because of bomb damage or struggle to access food because their ration books had been destroyed or lost. Berry St Edmunds had one located on a site opposite the Dog and Partridge pub, an old school that has been reimbursed, she tells me. Catherine has met people who has eaten there and three-course meal cost 11 pence. Her interest in history began in childhood, trips to museums and holidays in places like North Wales, where we were dragged up hills to piles of stones and had at some stage been a castle on the promise that there would have been a dungeon. There never was. Helped her decide to study history at O-level. But going back to the concept of big history, Catherine noticed that the syllabus only seemed to include battles and wars. I hated it. I was more interested in how they lived and what they ate rather than how they killed each other. I was told how armies, armies were fed wasn't relevant, so I dropped the subject and gave up on political and military history. And this is where food history comes in. After a career in the British Army, followed by running her own business, Catherine began to volunteer on the Guildhall's reception desk, then started to show visitors around the building. Even back then she focused on the social history of the Guildhall and the town, and as her historical research intensified, she started to do general tours before branching out into talks and themed tours. All of these retain a strong focus on local townsfolk, and how their lives intersected with the Guildhall's civic function. Catherine is at pains to explain that she does not see herself as a food historian in the manner of Annie Gray, whom she finds deeply inspiring, but as, quote, someone who sees the absurdity of British eating habits and manners over the years, unquote. I found her incredibly knowledgeable and personable, and it is obvious how much work she has put into the tour. I don't want to tell you too much about its content because I want you to attend this tour and be as intrigued and fascinated by the Guildhall's history and Catherine's relating of it as I was. But there is an old pear tree in the garden under which you are warned not to stand because it is a variety that drops its fruit like bombs onto unsuspecting heads and this pear tree grows on land under which are ancient wine cellars. Standing by the Tudor kitchen you will find out why eating breakfast means you are a peasant, why the working classes tended to eat their food piping hot and about the workhorse workhouse the Victorians built in the town and at the end of the tour there's a fascinating account of how one of the main functions of table manners is to identify who belongs to your social class and who does not. We walked around the nearby sensory garden 
which contains a variety of salvia that smells like body odour crossed with onion, and a lemony sorrel as sharp and bright as a paper cut. There's a corner plot based on the Anglo-Saxon lay of herbs with chervil and fennel, sent to the wretched and the fortunate as a help to all, which is pointedly democratic. A herbal from the Abbey of St of Bury St Edmunds, whose plantings are taken from a manuscript thought to date back to the time of Abbot Baldwin, is situated next to a patch of plants that were typically grown during the Second World War. I asked Catherine how the tours have been received. Well, it's early days. The groups I have taken around seem to enjoy it, especially table manners. Being British, which is just an excuse to sort people into us and them, the number of nodding heads and laughter leads me to think they are enjoying themselves. It's true. The British are obsessed with class, and seeing the evidence of this played out in front of you, as Catherine demonstrates the correct way to place a napkin after the meal is over, and how to pour a cup of tea, is deliciously uncomfortable at times. It entertainingly exposes your prejudices and beliefs. So go. There are many different tours and activities to choose from. Or maybe you'll just like to sit quietly in the town centre garden or walk around the frequent art exhibitions held on site. I came away with a genuine desire to know more and, thanks to Catherine's talk, lots of ideas as how I might do this. Excellent. What are we going to do? Go back to. Oh, let's find out. I'm not sure I want that one. Bit boring. Oh. We don't want that at the end. So I'm on next. Yeah. How many? Forty-five minutes. Ah, oh, we've done forty-five minutes. A Haverhill charity will be getting a helping hand from the Royal Navy when it moves to a new airhouse this weekend, ahead of what it expects to be one the town's toughest winters in terms of need and hardship. Saturday's move from Haverhill Food Bank's Hollands Road warehouse to its new building will be assisted by submariners from HMS Vengeance who are travelling from their base on the Clyde in Scotland to join the Remembrance Parade in Bury St Edmunds on Sunday. HMS Vengeance has had a long-standing relationship with West Suffolk Council and received the freedom of the borough in 2017 from the then Mayor Julia Wakelam. 
The visit was made possible by the chair of West Suffolk Council, Haverhill's Margaret Marks, who heard of the move and arranged for them to, to visit Reach for the day. HMS Vengeance crew members also helped the food bank move to its current warehouse back in November 2018. Henry Wilson, MBE, founder and chief executive of REACH Community Projects, of which the food bank is a part, said, We are unbelievably thrilled and excited that members of the crew of the Royal Navy's submarine HMS Vengeance should have so kindly offered to give up their time to move our food bank warehouse lock, stock and barrel into its new location. We have been preparing for this opening for three months now and I have wondered how the physical move could be achieved but the Royal Navy have come to our rescue and we just cannot express in words how truly grateful we are. The aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic along with all the economic and fiscal changes taking place were lining up for a potentially very hard winter season, said Henry. The Haverhill Food Bank warehouse currently stocks around 10 tonnes of food and other essentials for distribution to individuals and families and all of it has to be moved. Saturday's move will take place between 10 and 2 and anyone interested in helping can contact REACH on 01440 um, my next article is um, announcement that there is a temporary closure for the HSBC branch. Uh, the branch of HSBC in Bury St Edmunds is set to close for refurbishments. The branch will be closed from 2pm on Friday and reopen at 10am the following Friday. It will be converted to a digital service branch with new state-of-the-art self-service machines and furniture and general redecorating will be carried out. As well as that, the branch will include a better designed area for customer service and an area to be used for customer seminars, which could include talks on financial well-being or how to avoid becoming the victim of fraud. Paul Sargent, HSBC's UK's local director, said, We are continuing to invest millions of pounds into our branch network to create an enhanced experience for our customers. The changes that we are making in our Bury St Edmunds branch will mean customers have a much more modern branch. I am delighted that we are continuing to be there for our customers and the local community. He added it was clear customers were becoming more comfortable with online and mobile banking, but for those less confident using self-service options, support would still be offered to them by branch staff. Journalism matters. This is what Nadine Doris has written. That's the theme of this week's national campaign to celebrate the role a free press plays in British society. And it's a powerful statement of fact. But why? It's not just so we can have something entertaining to read with our morning bowl of cornflakes. Our democracy relies on it. Good journalism exposes wrongdoing and injustice. It scrutinises people in power and it champions and celebrates good causes. 
and at the heart of our news industry are local newspapers powered by the reporters, copy editors, photographers and publishers working 24-7 to bring us trusted local news and information. Their papers, like the Bedford Times and Citizen in my own constituency, are the pillars of their communities. They keep us in the loop with the stories that impact our day-to-day lives, from council or court decisions to the rise and fall of local sports teams. I want to pay tribute to the people who keep those papers in print. They work incredibly hard, and not always in the easiest of circumstances, to keep us informed and entertained. Their work has become even more important in the internet age. Every day we all go online and check our Facebook feeds or scroll through Twitter or Instagram. Each time we do so, we can be exposed to worrying misinformation such as COVID vaccine conspiracy theories. Now more than ever, we need properly sourced, robustly researched journalism. According to Ofcom, around two-thirds of people feel that the news they consume from print newspapers is just that, trustworthy, high quality and accurate. Journalists are our first line of defence in the fight against fake news. All of that has helped our papers get through Covid, but we've got to look to the future. We're living in a digital age and one of the biggest issues in my entry as Cultural Secretary is making sure big social media platforms protect their users from danger online, including misinformation. We're introducing a trailblazing online safety bill and will make us one of the first countries in the world to force tech companies to clean up their sites. But crucially for journalists, That bill will also prevent social media firms from taking down content from respected news organisations. And even better, it includes extremely important protections and exemptions for journalists so that we can protect their free speech while forcing social media platforms to police their sites properly. We've also got to make sure news publishers and big tech compete on an even playing field but we've set up a new competition unit charged with making sure the most powerful tech giants do not abuse their dominance to disadvantage businesses that rely on them. In government, we're doing all we can to help back our brilliant journalists to go about their jobs without fear or favour. This week, you can do the same by picking up a paper or visiting the websites of our world-renowned news industry. Bury St Edmunds MP Joe Churchill voted in favour of government proposals to reform the House of Commons disciplinary process on Wednesday. Although the government is now rethinking its plans after a U-turn, Miss Churchill voted in favour of the controversial plans. In what was described as a, quote, very serious and damaging moment for Parliament, unquote, by an ethics adviser to the Prime Minister, MPs voted on whether to reform the system after Owen Paterson, MP for North Yorkshire, was found to have breached parliamentary lobbying rules. A cross-party standards committee ruled that Mr Patterson had lobbied for ministers and officials for two companies which were paying him more than £100,000 per year. 
On Wednesday, MPs, including Ms Churchill, voted not to support the plans to suspend the North Shropshire MP with an overall majority of just 18. A part-time gamekeeper has been given a community order after he admitted six pesticide and firearms offences. Shane Leach of Maids Cross Hill, Lakenheath, was sentenced by magistrates at Ipswich on Monday following investigations into an illegally poisoned buzzard. He was ordered to do 80 hours unpaid work, pay £105 costs and 95 victim surcharge. The court heard that in September 2020, the dead bird of prey and a wood pigeon carcass were found on farmland near Lakenheath, close to where Leach ran a pheasant shoot. Tests confirmed the buzzard had been illegally poisoned by the pesticide, Bendiocarb, having fed a pigeon laced with the same toxic substance. In January this year, police and officers in Natural England and RSPB investigation searched Leach's home and in an unlocked outbuilding found two tubs of the pesticide, the active ingredient of which is a bendiocarb. A number of firearms were also seized. On nearby farmland where Leach operated his chute, a number of agricultural pesticides were found in appropriate storage conditions including slug pellets, which have been put into another container. No one has been prosecuted for the killing of the buzzard. A temporary home will be given to a Mildenhall post office as building work takes place on its current location. When the co-op in King Street, where the post office is currently located, announced its closure for refurbishment from November the 5th until December 17th, the town's post office was also set to close. From November 12th to December the 16th, it will be located in the Jubilee Centre, thanks to the town council. The council has said it is very pleased to be able to support the community by running this service at a crucial time. Opening hours at the temporary post office will be Monday to Friday 9 until 5.30 and Saturday from 9 until 1.30. At the temporary store, services will be limited and will not include the digital renewal of driving licences and passports, payment of gas or electric key and cards via the pay station or car tax renewals. And our final article, um, and it is written by John Bone, who writes in the Newmarket Journal and the columnist who gets people talking. Those who rejoice in the quirkiness of our language will share my pleasure in finding a snail race in our property pages. The race is a mill race and the snail is the river snail at Fordham. I'd buy the mill house where this curiosity occurs just for the fun of inviting visitors to see my snail race. I thought that when sport turf gave way to plastic, it meant a carefree future. No mowing, no feeding, no rolling... However, I see that the King's School at Ely has just spent £460,000 on refurbishing its Astro Service pitch. It took two contractors and several months. 
and all this in pursuit of plastic pitch at a time when young people everywhere are campaigning to free the world of plastic pollution. This seems an odd way to save the planet. Grass is good. My cousin Derek, who closely resembled Pooh's gloomy donkey friend, Eeyore, called to say, Good, that's Halloween and Guy Fawkes out of the way. Now there's nothing to dread until Christmas. How I wish he was right. But we seem to be going through a period in history when there's limitless supply of new diseases, new scandals, new threats. Or was it always like this? Derek says... Yes. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Telephone numbers mentioned in, edition, in this edition were the NHS Mediquip, that's 01473 351805, and the Haverhill Food Bank Move, 01440 712950. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Claire, Jackie, Sue and Neil, it's goodbye. Goodbye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.